electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Happy holidays, everyone. Bill Griffith here. We want to let all of our listeners know that today's episode of Nightly Business Report, produced by CNBC, is our last. It's been an amazing journey over the past seven years, bringing you the most important business and economic news. We truly could not have done this without your support. So from all of us at NBR, we thank you. Now, with that said, CNBC remains committed to bringing you unparalleled insight and analysis on today's complex business environment. That's why we are proud to present The Exchange, a daily program of thoughtful, in-depth reporting around the most important and interesting news happening in the markets. And you're already subscribed. Each day, you'll find the latest episode of The Exchange right here. If you've enjoyed NBR over the years, we trust that you will glean a lot from The Exchange. Again, we thank you for your support and wish all of you and your families a happy and healthy new year. All right, thanks very much, Sully. Here's what's ahead on the show. Stocks hitting all new time high, record highs again today as the market tries to finish a record-breaking decade on a high note, a record high note. Should investors fear what could be ahead or just ride this Wall Street wave to the upside? Plus, Amazon's off-the-charts growth. The stock is up more than 120,000% since it went public, but will the 2020s cool the Bezos boom? And a head-scratching story about auto lending that'll bring you back to the seeds of the housing bubble. That is all ahead, but we begin with Seema Modi and the market action today. And Seema, it was record highs to start. We're not there yet, though. Yeah, that's a great point, Dom. Three hours left in trade. And take a look at the screen. We're actually losing a bit of steam. The Nasdaq now down just about three points. S&P 500 higher by four. And the Dow Jones Industrial higher by 64 points. Uh, The Nasdaq, if it gets back into positive territory, would be on track for its 10th consecutive record close. That would be the longest streak for the Nasdaq since 1997. And it really has been a strong week for the major indices. Let's break down which stocks have been leading the charge. As you can see, uh, it is primarily technology. Apple, Intel, Amazon. In fact, Amazon stock now playing catch up on track for its biggest one week advance of the year in response to those strong holiday shopping sales. Stock up about 6%. Also want to draw your attention to shares of Nike sitting on yet another record high this afternoon. Consumer Edge overnight uh, raising its price target and initiating coverage with an overweight rating. And yes, some analysts saying, well, this is very late to the game. This is a stock that has been really outperforming up 38 percent this year. But analysts there, they think this company can continue to benefit from the consolidation that we're seeing in the brick and mortar retail space. Don, back to you. All right, Seema, thank you very much for that update on the markets. As she mentioned, Nike hitting a new high today, along with a host of other household names, including Facebook, Apple, J.P. Morgan Chase and Microsoft, all hitting new highs today. But it's not just the the usual suspects rallying this month. Check out what's happening with the oil services sector. Now, back in August, it hit a 52 week low in December. It's roaring back up around 15 percent. So should investors be looking at these rebounding laggards as we look ahead into 2020? 
Let's ask Kim Forrest, Chief Investment Officer over at Boca Capital Partners, also Vahan Janjigian, Chief Investment Officer of Greenwich Wealth Management. And Kim, we're going to start with you here. We mentioned some of those household names. We also mentioned energy and oil services. How much of that energy trade is going to be a big theme in 2020? I think investors really, really want energy to be a big trade, but I also fear that it's globally oversupplied. And um, while the rebound is great, I don't think I would ride it on up past this point. Interesting, because the prices have been rising steadily. We're still not at 52-week highs. But, Vahan, there's a case to be made that energy has gone down so far that it could be compelling at this stage. Is it right to think that it could be poised for a bounce next year? Yes, I think it is right, Dom. Um, I really like energy. Um, we've seen a, a nice rally in oil prices, but energy-related stocks haven't kept up with that. So I think uh, they eventually will catch up. So I think it's a good time to get into these names. They are very oversold. Um, I've been adding uh, XLE to many of my portfolios, an easy way to do this using an ETF. Um, so, yeah, I think energy is a good place to be. Vahan, are there places in particular besides the ETF market? Uh, is it exploration and production companies? Is it the large integrateds? Is it the oil services companies? Is it offshore drillers? I mean, where exactly can that relative value still be found in energy? Well, one stock I really like is Murphy Oil. It's an uh, oil uh, exploration and production company. Uh, their last earnings report was uh, better than expected. I think they're uh, in the midst of a nice uh, turnaround. So I think that stock is still uh, undervalued and uh, has a nice dividend. But as far as the, uh, the bigger integrated companies go, I also like uh, ExxonMobil. I think that would be a, uh, a good stock to consider, also with a nice dividend. So I think stocks like this, uh, individual names, are, are good things to add to your portfolio. But again, uh, the easy way to play it is with an ETF. All right. Well, that's the contrarian play because it's obviously been a laggard so far this year. Kim, let's take us back to the leadership. NASDAQ 9000, it's tech and communication services stocks that are doing all the heavy lifting. We know the mega cap names out there. Can those mega cap names in the NASDAQ still be trusted on to continue this trend higher? Mm, I don't think anything is trusted, but I think you should look to the technology and uh, data supplier kind of area for your portfolios. And you might want to go down, not um, just in those big names, but the next rung lower to try to find some undiscovered values. But our society is moving in the, uh, in the direction of everything being connected. And the things that connect them, semiconductors and the data companies, which are now um, telephone, the old telephone companies, I think they're important and they are centerpieces of our economy that we build whole businesses around and you just can't uh, ignore that. So, so Kim, let's put, let's put names to this. What's, what's on the shopping list sure. for you? What, what names go on that list in 2020? Sure. Well, I still love, um, and it is a bigger name, Intel. And it's funny, the show before, you know, somebody was pounding the table on Intel and I'll join that. I think it is... Um, not well understood why um, you should own this name because people think of PCs and Intel and I think that they're expanding their market. The other thing that I really love about Intel is they own their fabricating plants and I think there's a whole lot um, that investors can uh, uh, 
get out of that because they, there's a lot of engineering know-how that gets passed up and down the value chain there. And it should in time end in better margins, which is always better for investors. All right. So tech leading the way again in energy, maybe the contrarian trade. Thanks, Kim Force, also Vahan Janjiki for those thoughts on the market. We appreciate it. Well, this got our attention, folks. China, Russia, and Iran are set to hold joint naval drills in the Gulf of Oman. It's a headline in the past that may have rattled the markets, but for some reason these days, geopolitical risks and tensions are not worrying investors at all. Could that change in 2020? Let's bring in Admiral James Stavridis, former Supreme Allied Commander at NATO, also a CNBC contributor. And we've got Michelle Caruso Cabrera as well, also a CNBC contributor. Michelle, we got to start with you. This has been your bag. You've been watching so many of these risks for so long. Are there certain places in particular that you think will ring the bell for investors in catalyst terms in 2020? It, it depends on if there are surprises that, that obviously is a surprise we don't expect, right? You can look at 2020 geopolitics and say, what are the priorities of the Trump administration? What are the risks? The priorities are going to be still China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. What are some of the risks? What if we get a cyber attack that hurts our critical infrastructure in some way? How long does it last? How much does it reveal any weaknesses that we have? That could be very destabilizing for the markets. But I think the reason you don't see the markets reacting to the news that you just talked about is because it's become, we've become very aware that those three countries are an issue and we have to see them in a different light than we say did five, ten years ago. I mean, Admiral, Michelle brings up an excellent point here. It's been the last few years that, that North Korea was hawking missiles into the Pacific Ocean. Markets kind of vacillated a bit there. They've become desensitized to that. Iran, any issues in the Gulf have become perhaps desensitized there. Is there anything in your mind that represents that true unknown risk that really rattles things next year? I don't think uh, completely unknown, but let's take the two cases at, at, on discussion here. One is Iran. Um, recall just uh, a matter of months ago, Iran was... Uh, attempting to sink tankers, was shooting down drones, and most critically attacked the Saudi oil fields. Um, They certainly have a lot of capability in the bank. um, And look for them to make that move. And frankly, these naval exercises are showing the world that China and Russia are going to be more supportive, perhaps, of Iran than they have been in the past. So I would watch that closely. And for investors, I'd watch the Arabian Gulf. Watch what happens at sea. Uh, on the other side of the world, North Korea, we were looking for the Christmas surprise. Who knows? Maybe it'll be the Kwanzaa surprise or the Hanukkah surprise. They've got until New Year's. Uh, but I think there will be a surprise on the North Korean side of this. Because again and again, we've seen Kim uh, take an unexpected turn in events. And here I'm really with Michelle. Watch for cyber both from North Korea and for Iran. So I think there is potential out there for a variety of, unfortunately, unpleasant surprises. So all those names that you mentioned, Michelle, they're in a graphic behind us right now. Geopolitical risks to the rally. You mentioned Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea. Admiral just agreed with you. Cyber is going to be key. Mm -hmm. Among those, who should we fear the most on the cyber side of things? Is it Iran? Because we hear about those all the time. North Korea, we know they have an army of hackers out there. I, I think all of them. Russia clearly has the desire, the wherewithal. They've demonstrated that already, correct? China, we know, has been stealing uh, intellectual property via cyber theft for a very long time. Um, the, the, the will to really hurt us comes from Iran, 
if you want to worry about infrastructure that could be destabilized, what if they do something to the water system? What if somehow electricity gets permanently shut down or, or shut down for, for an extended period of time? What if we can't communicate via the Internet for days at a time? How would we even work here at CNBC, right? Those are, when I talk about that being the biggest risk, it's because, gosh, containing it and constraining it and us reacting to it is, is something that we haven't done yet, as opposed to we have been dealing with Russia and China and Iran in conventional terms for a very long time. All right. We're going to leave that conversation there. Uh, I, I, Admiral, I'll give the last word to you. Yeah, just one, one additional thought here is we're heading into an election year, and therefore the cyber play here is going to be magnified in that rarefied air leading up to November of 2020. So I think Michelle and I would agree um, here in cyber we have the greatest mismatch between level of threat quite high and level of preparation, which is not so good. All the other things we've talked about, preparation is pretty good. Watch cyber in 2020. All right. So let's see if our government and officials have learned anything from what happened in 2015 to 2017. Michelle, thank you very much. Admiral, thank you very much for your thoughts. We appreciate it. See you later. Well, here's what else is coming up on the show. Coming up, Amazon's had a monster decade. Will the momentum continue in 2020? California is going the way of the EU, and it could have a huge impact on tech companies. And applying for an auto loan? Be sure to read the fine print. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Amazon reporting a record holiday season. Add that to the already booming e-commerce business and its spells potential game changer for the year in the delivery business. Frank Holland joins us more with what to expect in 2020 for Amazon. 2019 is on pace to be another record year for e-commerce, with holiday online sales forecast to increase as much as 14 percent, according to the National Retail Federation. And the trend is expected to continue in 2020. Here's what to watch. First, e-commerce exceeds expectations. The global e-commerce market could grow to $4 trillion in 2020, according to UBS, but has the potential to be even larger as more retailers offer same-day and next-day shipping, along with added curbside pickup options. Also, total sales made by smartphone are expected to increase by 32% next year, according to eMarketer. Second, Amazon acquisitions. Amazon's e-commerce empire is built on strong logistics on the ground and in the air. Amazon currently operates about 50 planes and expects to have 70 flying by 2021. Look for acquisitions in 2020 as it continues to grow its capacity for ground logistics and delivery. And third, drone delivery. FedEx and UPS are battling to be the leader in residential drone deliveries. Both companies are testing technologies with drugstore chains to deliver prescriptions and retail goods. Amazon and Google also have their eyes on the skies when it comes to shipping. 2020 may be the year e-commerce takes flight 
in a whole new way. All right. Thanks, Frank Holland, for that. Meanwhile, Amazon shares higher again today after posting their best day since January and set to cap off this decade with a truly amazing run here. Get this. That stock is now up nearly 126,000 percent since Amazon went public back in 1997. So will the 2020s be more of the same? For more, let's bring in Steve Malunovich, managing director of Wolf Research, also Dan Gallagher of The Wall Street Journal as well. So, Dan, let's start with you. Set the stage for us here. This Amazon story has been massive over the last 10, 15 years. Does it continue in 2020? Uh, I think 2020 is going to continue to bring uh, very strong growth, especially for a company of Amazon size. Um, But I also think that growth is going to be more expensive to come by and more challenging. Um, Amazon sales growth has already been decelerating over the last few quarters. And I think that's going to continue because they're facing more competition in the cloud, more competition in retail. So this is a company that, while they've averaged over the last 10 years, you know, about 28 percent annual growth, I'm not sure I see that going ahead in the next 10 because, one, they're so big, and the other is there's just uh, more, more competing on all sides for all that money. All right, so Steve, I mean, this is interesting. The last quarterly report for Amazon showed that the Amazon Web Services division, their crown jewel of growth, is still growing rapidly, but just at its slowest pace in years now. Should we worry about the growth story at Amazon, or can that number really start to propel Amazon shares into the next decade? First, let me say that my colleague Chris Petuglieri covers Amazon for us, and he has an outperform rating. From a tech strategist perspective, I think AWS still has a lot of growth ahead of it. Andy Jassy, who uh, runs that business, suggests that only 3% of workloads have moved to the public cloud. Most investors would size it more at 10 to 15%, but the point is that we're still in maybe the second or third inning. Microsoft Azure is clearly catching up, but it's still about half the size. Jassy thinks that AWS has a 24-month lead, particularly in features. So I I think this is going to continue to power the company. In fact, it's probably worth almost half of the market cap today. So, so Steve, then if it's worth about half, how much do you think of the stock price appreciation for Amazon over the course of the past, say, two or three years has been driven because of AWS? And how much because of that retail business is actually scaled towards some semblance of profitability that can be maintained? I would guess maybe two-thirds of the appreciation has been in AWS. Now, you you questioned uh, some of the margin pricing pressure we could see. In our surveys, we find that users are still more focused on features than cost. So I think they're going to continue to do well. But obviously, the growth is going to come down somewhat over time. Amazon is really two platforms. It's a transaction platform with third parties on the retail side, and then it's an innovation platform with AWS and the very strong ecosystem. And Amazon still, we think, has better scale than competitors, network effects, and switching costs, all which will benefit the company over the next five to ten years. So, so Dan, I wonder, I mean, from a competitive perspective, you, you brought it up. Let's talk about comp- 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 competition on the retail side of things. You've got the likes of Target and Walmart actually making huge strides in omni-channel and e-commerce. It's been driving their stock, obviously. And then you've got the AWS side of things. You've got Azure, Google Cloud, other cloud providers also starting to gain ground on them. Which is the bigger competitive story in the next year? 
I, I think cloud is the most is the bigger story in terms of competition that could uh, affect how Amazon is valued in the market. Because, like like Steve said, a lot of the appreciation that we've seen over the last few years has been primarily from AWS. Um, and the way the stock has performed over Amazon's last two quarterly reports, it's gone down. And that's because those AWS numbers haven't come in the way the street expected. So I think that has kind of an outsized impact on how market Amazon's market value. Um, ends up. And so, and when you have Microsoft and Google and a lot of other cloud players really driving hard for that kind of money for, the, for those dollars, um, and a lot of potential cloud customers now see Amazon as at least somewhat of a threat because Amazon is getting into so many businesses that, has, that affects their calculation of who they're going to do business with in the cloud. And that's usually a leg up for companies like Microsoft and to a lesser extent Google. All right. Dan Gallagher, also Steve Malinovich, thank you very much for those thoughts on Amazon. Great to get your thoughts on those. Well, donors are saying whoa to Elizabeth Warren. Whoa, her latest fundraising numbers, those are coming up. Plus, early employees of Facebook were able to cash in big on their sweat equity once the company went public. But as startups stay private for longer, that payday is further away. What that means for secondary markets, that's coming up later on on The Exchange. Deeper data at CNBC. Gasoline consumption in the U.S. gained 0.3% in the week ending December 20th compared to the same week a year ago. That's slightly higher than expected. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Here are some of the stocks on the move this hour. You've got Flexion Therapeutics soaring today after the FDA approved a revision of the language of the label of its drug used to treat knee pain to be less stringent. That stock is up more than 10% in trading today. You've also got shares of the Michaels companies climbing more than 17% after it named Walmart executive Ashley Buchanan as president and CEO. The company also announced the departure of its own CFO. And it's a different story for RH. Those shares falling by more than 6%. That stock will be joining the S&P mid-cap 400 from the small cap 600 prior to the market open on January 2nd. Now let's send it over to Bill Griffith, who's got a CNBC News update. Bill. Thank you, Dom. Here's what's happening at this hour. Anti-government protesters in Baghdad gathered to celebrate the president's decision to reject a candidate for prime minister who had been backed by pro-Iranian lawmakers. This to avoid more bloodshed and to safeguard civil peace. Those protesters had demonstrated against that candidate. Back here at home, 28 states are now reporting high flu activity, according to the CDC. That's up from 21 states last week. So far, there have been at least 4.6 million illnesses, 2,100 deaths from the flu this season. A mansion built more than 120 years ago has gone up in flames. Aerial video shows the blaze in Concord, Mass. The home was built back in 1897, was appraised at nearly $3 million. And last night in Oklahoma City, Thunder mascot Rumble the Bison made a special courtside visit to entertainer Christian Chenoweth, who was in the crowd. Rumble presented her with a bouquet of flowers. She is an Oklahoma City native, is taking in the game. 
Unfortunately her, for her, though, the Thunder lost to the Memphis Grizzlies, 110-97. to That's the news update. I'll see you momentarily, Mr. Yeah. Chu. Yes, for Rapid Fire, yes. Bill Griffith. Here is what's ahead on The Exchange. Ahead, Tesla has big plans in China. Sports betting gives Atlantic City a boost. And bosses aren't getting the biggest raises. It's all ahead on The Exchange. Not at all like that. <laughs> all right, guys, let's catch you up on a few stories that need to be on your radar. It's time for Rapid Fire. Here with their takes, we got Brian Sullivan. Sully, he's here. Seema Modi as well, and also Bill Griffith. First up, folks, team, we've got Tesla announcing it will begin deliveries of its Model 3s built in Shanghai starting Monday. Production in the Chinese factory kicked off in October. The ultimate goal here is to produce 250,000 vehicles a year from that Shanghai location. Separately, there's a regulatory filing that shows that Tesla has new agreements with Chinese lenders for a loan of up to 1.2 billion bucks. The loan could be used for the Shanghai plant or to pay down debt, all kinds of things. Let's, Tesla shares are at a near record high. Let's I mean, review, so much to talk about. Let's review here. They didn't buy that land until January. This, yes. Jan, this last January. Then they started the construction of this, uh, of this facility, and they started to bring cars out in October, and now they're delivering. Uh, the, Fifteen of them, hopefully, it's here. It's unbelievable. You know, the o- U.S. auto industry works, what, five years ahead. It, they, they're, their lead time is unbelievably long, it seems. But for Tesla... They turn on a dime and start building uh, within the year. And their first manufacturing plant outside of the U.S. I think if you take a step back, this is in general a good case study of how a company, a foreign company, can get access to the very powerful Chinese consumer. You set up a manufacturing plant and you also take out a loan from a consortium of Chinese (laughs) banks. I mean, but by the way, setting up and investing in a country is not uh, unique to China, even in India, too. If you want access to the Indian consumer, Apple had to do the same thing, set up a bunch of plants inside the country. Uh, two things. Number one, you've been to China a lot more than I have, but I've been there. Where are the charging stations going to go? I mean, well, people, they're building those as well. Well, right there's now. no room in a lot of these sure big there cities. Are. In those empty cities that they have out there. All those ghost cities. That's what yeah, they're I mean, yeah. seriously, nobody, people don't have garages. It's not like America where you can just throw it in there. You know what the market cap of Tesla is right now? I'm not saying it's overpriced. It's like 70 some billion. 77 billion. Yeah. You know what General Motors market cap is? 52 billion. Yeah. Wow. Tesla's market cap is 30, what, 5% more than General Motors on one-fifth the sales. Of course, GM's got a lot of debt. We are not in the 20th century anymore, Toto. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Yeah. Would it, you drive it's, one? It's where, oh, what? No matter where it was made, are. a Tesla. I drove the Tesla Roadster, the first one. Right. The but one that was based buy, on the old would, Lotus model. I mean, I didn't buy, own it. Would you buy Somebody one? Somebody let me drive it around. Would you buy one? I, w- a, I would. I don't, our, I don't. As our resident car guy. Is I, I do. I, do. I would buy one. I, think the mo- I don't like the looks of the three. I think the Model S is a spectacular-looking car. I think the Model X is, what did Bob Lutz call it, an inflatable bug? How about that truck? <laughs> yeah, that no. monstrosity, no. which I think will be a great test for car. Tesla. But i buy the launch next year. Yeah, it could be. It's fast. Yeah. All right. Yeah. There you go, Tesla. Next up, guys, we got wages. They've been rising for a while now thanks to a red-hot economy. But according to a new report from the Atlanta Fed, rank-and-file workers are getting their best bottom-line boost in more than a decade. Wages for the bottom 25% rose 4.5% in November compared to last year, while pay for the top 25% of earners rose just 2.9%. Now, here's the math. The math, the simple math is, 
when you make 2.9% more and you're making a six to seven figure salary, it's still a lot more money that you're making. But do you know it does, it does. No, I do not. But it does show, <laughs> though, maybe a trend is changing. How is it like to have well, a 2.9% I mean, this is classic, I'm one of those other folks. This is there, classic so. late cycle uh, uh, trend right now to see uh, wage earners uh, in the mid range and lower range, you know, getting their due at this point. And let's not forget, come January 1st, uh, the minimum wage is going up in 21 states uh, this uh, time around I'm not as well. Throw so, water on it, but I will say this: if you go back, I looked at the data. Wage growth was 5.8 percent in the late 90s. So we're in this red-hot economy, but still, wage growth isn't what it was. Right. Sure. Back when Pets.com and WorldCom and all these companies were were doing great. This is a big story for the economy because, as you point out, the economic story has been low unemployment, but wages have not been growing uh, at all. And actually, that story is very similar in the UK, in Japan, uh, in Australia as well. So to actually see wages rising, and specifically for a a consumer that. many times says they've been left behind, it is a good thing. So what's, what's the, what keeps that trend in place, guys, I, I guess is the real thing. I mean, we, we've got this kind of gain marginally in, in those wages. How is that sustained? Is it training? Is it, is it other kinds of things that have to happen for, 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 for these particular workers to say that, hey, you know what, we're actually closing the gap from a, from a pay standpoint? Well, certainly education is important in that regard. And, but, I, I mean, I don't think we're even talking necessarily just about skilled workers, you know, there's still a shortage of those out there. So we do need to have more education to bring those skilled, more skilled workers online. But we're talking about some of the lower end as well that are getting these, uh, these pay raises, yeah. which is about time. As we need, we need geographic out. mobility. I've been arguing this yes, for, for yes. years. Well, there's all these people that are in the upper Midwest that either are underemployed or unemployed. There's all these jobs in the southeast they're perfect matches, except the person in Northeast Ohio can't, can't sell their house. But how do you do that? To get, I, create a transferable mortgage? I, I don't know. There's got to be some way to get the people to where the jobs are. You know what country is really good at doing that? What? The Chinese. Are they I mean, good? They, they move they, them around they, their Tesla trucks. Yeah, and it's actually a state program. I mean, they really help some of these. Uh, they help a lot of citizens from Tier 3, Tier 2 cities yeah, come But to sometimes China they're like, come on, you're so moving. So we want to no, be like moving. China? Yeah. We're going to be like China? Is that what we want to be? We're going to be moving now. Just giving you an example. This is where the new monorail is going. But my family's been here 500 years. Don't worry about it. I'm building a dam. Yes, I'm not sure that's going to be the right plan, but we can always talk about it. That's why we're here for it. Anyway, topic three, guys. This is a big one. A new alarming headline at this hour on Senator Elizabeth Warren's quest for the Democratic nomination for president. Her fundraising numbers are plummeting. CNBC.com's Brian Schwartz breaking the story just in the last hour or so. He's going to saunter on set right now and join us. Welcome. Brian, welcome. Thank you very much. So take us through this. How alarmed should the Democrats and Senator Elizabeth Warren be? Well, Senator Elizabeth Warren should be concerned. She saw her campaign is saying that she saw a drop in fundraising compared to last quarter, uh, where she raised $24.6 million. This quarter so far is four days left. She's only brought in $17 million. That's what her campaign told a bunch of supporters in an email that we obtained here at CNBC. Uh, you know, what that could suggest is that many of these kind of progressive policies, the wealth tax, the Medicare for all, uh, may be hurting you know, her, her, her entire campaign finance situation going into the year 2020, which is a critical time for her campaign. So this is also interesting, guys, because we just came off a story when we talked about the idea that a certain segment of our economy and workers are actually starting to make more gains in terms of wages. Mm -hmm. So does all of that maybe hurt the narrative from folks on, say, the left to really left about the state of the U.S. economy and workers in America? 
I don't, I, I don't think so. You're not going to change any minds. I mean, people are set uh, the way they're going to go. The question I have for you is, sure. so her, she's down 30%. How about the other candidates? Well, is this a trend, or is she alone in, lo- in, in seeing lower fundraising? Well, we don't order? know officially yet, because yeah. many of the candidates haven't come out with their totals yet. But there's one note here. Former Vice President Joe Biden announced a few weeks ago that he actually is seeing an uptick in fundraising compared to last quarter. He raised about $15 million uh, you know, a few months ago. They're saying that they've raised more than that, the campaign itself. So... You know, this do, could suggest that she's Do we get, think that there's a Mike Bloomberg effect? Yeah. You know, or is it Mayor Pete? I mean, he's the one who's been getting some momentum. Or is it Christmas? People just don't right? have the money to donate exactly. because they're buying it Legos. Be it. it could be all of those things. I mean, Pete Buttigieg, like you said, has been doing really well, kind of picking up a mix of, you know, business executives, but also small-dollar donors, a group of people that Elizabeth Warren desperately needs. Uh, Bernie Sanders also has a pool of these small-dollar kind of $1, $2 donations um, from, from Elizabeth Warren. She's been trying to take from him, Bernie Sanders, that is. So it could be a whole number of effects. It would be the Christmas season. But in terms of things for Elizabeth Warren, does not look good going So here, here's my question then. Let's say that this is the case and Elizabeth Warren <clears throat> needs to right the ship. What needs to happen in her camp to make sure that she gets those fundraising numbers back up? Well, I think that, you know, she's going to have to make a serious decision, right? Elizabeth Warren, when she was in the Senate, did do big money fundraisers. Let's not kid herself. She went to the big, the big banks and people in the finance sector and got them to give her, uh, give her money. She has kind of siphoned them off. She's kind of gone away from them. The question she's going to ask herself is in 2020, the year 2020, is she going to have to go back to them if she isn't going to get enough, you know, dollar, two dollar donations to kind of surge back to where she was early in the campaign? Some of the private equity has a tend to lean left, Blair Efron right. uh, and Mark Lazary. Yep. Any idea who they're backing? Well, they're going into Joe Biden's camp right now. She doesn't have a lot of time, right? She, she's kind of, you know, with a lot of these attacks that she's put against Wall Street, well, well, she's kind of pushed Warren them out. Warren basically said, I want to end the private equity business. Right. So if, if you're a private equity executive, yeah, you're, you're thinking to yourself, hey, you're not going, you're not let's vote for the be. person who says they want to end our industry. Or right? keep a lot the enemy of oil and gas CEOs aren't voting that way either. All right. I'm going to end fracking. It's going to be a big deal for sure, guys. Brian Schwartz, thank you very much. Great reporting. Thanks for breaking that story. And by the way, go to CNBC.com. The full story is up there, including other comments from that Elizabeth Warren campaign email. All right. Thank you very much. Topic four here, guys. New Jersey's legalization of sports betting has now boosted the fortunes of two big players in gaming. You've got Atlantic City and then online casinos as well. According to the New Jersey Division of Gaming Enforcement, Atlantic City casinos and their online partners have raked in over $430 million this year from virtual games like roulette and blackjack. That's a jump of roughly 60% from last year. This is when we all look at Brian and go, Brian, Okay, I'll tell you you why. The numbers are going to get even bigger, and I'm going to tell you why. I've talked to people in Atlantic City, people that own casinos. It's hard to gamble online from a payments perspective. Straight up Visa and American Express, you're not usually allowed to fill your bank with those cards. PayPal struggles a bit with it, too. You sometimes have to buy kind of a debit card. So the act of it's kind of like the cannabis business, primarily still a cash business. The act of moving money around from player to casino online is still hard when they figure out how to streamline it. Those numbers. You think about a partnership with a company like PayPal or Square, you know, Venmo is part of PayPal. Well, PayPal's but anything on that ha- some of these websites. But what I mean is when you start to facilitate those, those trades and transactions in an easier way, then that opens things up, right? Or is this just about sports betting really drawing people in? You're catching me off guard with this. I, I, why, why would payment ironically be a, a hindrance Beneficiary in this whole or thing? It should, no, it's just an who, issue. Who's the, it's not who's like the so, reluctant participant so if, here. No, 
I think it's the, the global payment system. I don't know the MasterCards, the banking system, because what do they if care? you're it's a casino, and the only reason I know this, I bet a little bit because I want to see how it worked yeah, and sure. hedge out some other stuff. Research. You, yeah, exactly. If you want to put money into a bank at a Golden Nugget or a MGM or whatever it is, a, you've got to live in that state. They put a they put a geographic locator yep. on your you know what I'm talking about sure. too yep. on your computer to make sure you're actually in one of those states. But the act of moving the money, you can't just buy, it's not like buying something online. I can't use my American Express or whatever it is to, to just money. fill your bank. Yes. They don't do that. There's some sort of issue with the banking. Wow, so crazy. once they open that up, there's also regulations, laws about using credit facilities to finance to gamble. gamble. Yeah. So this so is that, a lot like cannabis. That's right? why crypto It's not like I'm going to go, yeah, and to be fair, I'm not going to go to the, the, the dealer and be like, here's my Amex, give me $10,000. Yeah, yeah, right. I'm 14 cocktails in. No, thanks. Here's what I would say, though, guys. The online and the sports gambling has revitalized a lot of Atlantic City. It wasn't that long ago we were saying that these places were decrepit and going to a ghost town. All right, guys, thank you very much. Brian Sullivan, Seema Modi, Bill Griffith in Rapid Fire. Thank you very much. A new law in California aims to rewrite the rules of the Internet and in the state, and it could cost businesses billions of dollars. Jane Wells back in Los Angeles with that story. Jane. Hi, Dom. Starting New Year's Day, they are raising the bar here in Internet privacy and a law that could go national. By one estimate, it will cost corporate America $55 billion to comply. We'll have that story when we come back. Welcome back. Let's get a quick check on the markets right now. You can see that the Dow Industrials off at their highs of the day, but it's still up 46 points. It's up about two-tenths of 1%. The S&P just about flat on the day, up about one point. And the Nasdaq is actually in the red, off by about one-tenth of 1%, 11 points to the downside. By the way, the level, because we're paying attention, 9,010 and change. Well, a new California law aims to make online life more transparent for users, but it could cost big businesses as much as $55 billion dollars. Jane Wells has the details and what it means for the tech sector. Jane. Oh, and not just tech, everybody. Look, if you're a company already doing business in Europe with their strict Internet policy, this is no big deal. If you're not, this California situation is a huge deal and companies are scrambling. Take a look. Already, Californians like me are being inundated with emails from companies saying, this new law is happening. And what is it? Well, starting Wednesday, if I go to the homepage... Not the app, but the homepage for, say, Starbucks or Google or Costco. It should be clear to me what they do with my data. There should be a button for me to opt out, or I can even tell them to delete my data, and I can demand to know how much data they have. Allegedly, that's what's supposed to happen. Now, this being California, there are all kinds of things. Google's already trying to change its policy. Facebook is pushing back on what it thinks uh, it has to disclose online. And if the federal government might step in again because it's the Trump administration and say, hey, wait a minute, what are you doing? What we hope, though, is that the federal government will at least, as they say in medicine with the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. Do not undermine the rights that Californians today will have uh, to protect their privacy. And individual companies can be paying anywhere from 50 grand dom to two and a half million dollars just for this one law to be compliant. Back to you. All right. So so how do you know if you're a company in California, how do you know that you have to comply with these particular guidelines? Is it a size thing? Is it a locality thing? Is it how do you know that these rules then apply to you? First of all, you don't have to be in California. You just have to have one customer in California. And there's three criteria, basically. One, either you make at least $25 million a year in revenues, 
or you have data on at least 50,000 customers, or you make at least half your revenue selling customer data. So Facebook is pushing back. Clearly, Facebook already qualifies for the law just by the revenue alone. But Facebook isn't thinking it has to disclose that much on the homepage because it argues technically under the law it doesn't sell your information, it shares it, and somehow it makes money on that. I don't know, Jane. It just raises a lot more questions than, than I think it answers by the time this is. But, but who knows? We'll see what happens with this. Jane Wells, thank you very much for that update. Big tech under fire again, this time from the state of California. Well, as the unicorns that went public this year flounder, more startups are staying private for longer, forcing employees to get more creative about how they cash out. This is the rise of the secondary markets, and it's coming up next. Well, with companies staying private for longer, employees at startups are grappling with the fact that their public market payday may be years away as their financial futures stay tied up in so-called sweat equity. Joining us now to drill down on the growing unicorn dilemma is our own Kate Rooney. And in this situation, I thought that it was easy for private company employees to sell their stock on these secondary markets to mutual funds who wanted to buy them and everything else, but it's not that easy. It's not easy. It's easy to find buyers because you have a ton of venture capitalists interested. You've seen this rise in venture capital, and they'd happily buy uh, shares from a startup employee. But for the actual employees, it's much harder. So you have a discount for one, so usually they trade between 10 and 20% lower than the IPO price or the price that they are actually worth because of these secondary markets. You have uh, imperfect information, so you don't know how many shares are actually out on these markets. It's hard to find a fair value. And if you're an engineer, for example, you might not have a financial background. You might not know how to value your own equity. Then you have uh, your common stock as a startup employee is not worth nearly as much as some of the potentially uh, Series A investor stocks. So you have sort of that liquidation preference, that stuff is impossible to find out about um, unless you're maybe in the C-suite or a venture capital investor. So, so what's interesting about this is, is, is there a way then, is it almost like if you're an employee at this company, you still need public markets to make sure that you can monetize that transaction or find at least price transparency? I thought that we were trending towards this idea that you don't need public markets. You don't need that liquidity anymore. You can just transact among private parties and, and it'll all be fine. I think on the buyer side, that's true. I think there are plenty of resources for venture capitalists to find the right price. They can do diligence on a deal. But for the average startup employee, for example, so say they want to go and buy a house, they can't wait the 13 years on average that it takes a company to go public, they don't have very many options and they don't know who to go to. And in some cases, there are people out there offering things like forward contracts and saying, I will pay you to buy your equity. And then in the, IP, in the case of an IPO or in five years, then we'll, we'll get to it. So sort of these examples of forward contracts uh, or futures. Do you which, think that takes some of the luster away from those options packages and equity packages that you get for going to work at these private companies? I've spoken to a few recruiters who have said that's now something that startups are thinking about when they're recruiting, that they will have to either put a chart on the offer letter that says this is exactly how much your equity is worth. They have to be a bit more transparent. And then they do things like tender offers where they will uh, offer to employees, hey, we're doing a fundraise. We'll keep $100 million of that um, so that you guys can sell your shares versus us selling a portion of the company and therefore diluting it. So it works for both of them. I think startups have this in mind and knowing that uh, startup employees, so Airbnb, for example, um, mentioned this and said to their employees, we're going to do this 
as part of a fundraise and then said, okay, this is exactly when we're going public. So they have to give their employees more information, and startups definitely have that in mind. It almost sounds like hedge funds and gates and everything for taking money out and everything else, but it's going to be a big trend for sure. Thank you very much, Kate Rooney. All right. Well, car buyers beware. Some dealers and lenders are reportedly doctoring car loans, and it's hurting customers. Those details are coming up next. So the airwaves right now are flooded with glossy ads for new cars, big bows, cheering kids. You get the picture here. But a new investigation by The Wall Street Journal finds some says that auto dealers are actually, quote, fudging loan applications for buyers, putting them in cars they can't afford. Does it sound a bit like what happened with the no-doc liar loans during the housing bubble? How big of a problem is this? Let's bring in the Wall Street Journal reporter who's been doing this story, Ben Eisen, the co-author of this particular piece. And Ben, I got to say, when I first saw this story and read it, I'm thinking to myself, this can't be happening. They cannot be lying on loan documents again to get people into assets. But they are. Absolutely. It looks somewhat, somewhat like what you saw during the financial crisis or prior to it. It's, uh, it's, it's a situation in which... People need cars. People need a loan to get the car. And in order to get it done, sometimes you have to basically lie on the application. And so you're seeing dealers basically fudge the numbers a bit in order to get the loan approved. So let's take us through the construct here. Because the way it's set up, financing is separate from car dealerships. The dealer salespeople are compensated by how many cars they sell, how many cars they move. And their incentive is to try to get people into as many cars as possible then the financing arm is what enables that. So how exactly is this all being done because of the way that these dealerships and financing arms operate with each other? Well, what you're seeing these days is more and more people need a loan in order to get a car. And that's really the obstacle to basically get that car and drive off the lot. And the dealer is the, is the one that fills out the credit application and gets you approved for the loan with a third-party lender. And so in order to, to approve you for the loan, if you need to have a certain income level but you don't, the dealer can make up that number. And you're seeing an, an, an increasing number of cases uh, where lawsuits and regulatory actions where people are sort of cracking down on this action. So people are actually getting into vehicles they cannot afford. They, they, let's say I, I only have like a $500 a month to spend on a car, yet because of my loan aggressive documentation, I'm now paying a $700 car loan on this. This has got to be a risk for financers. So how exactly are they managing that kind of a risk if they know that there's this kind of behavior happening at dealerships? Right. This is this is definitely an issue. And, you know, we spoke with one person who uh, ended up getting a car loan that was had a monthly payment that was more than she actually made in income. And so you you actually have sort of that disparity there. Um, So it it ends up falling to the dealer to basically approve to make sure that all the documentation is correct on the loan um, and make sure that the person's income when it's stated at being a certain level, that it actually is at that level. But increasingly, um, th- these lenders, they, they just are not uh, checking incomes. They're not verifying. Um, whereas when you go to get a mortgage, you might need to get uh, have it, put your W-2s and your bank statements and sort of other things that prove that you, c- you actually have the income that's stated on your, your application. But with car, dealer- car-, car lenders, it's not quite the case. Is this pervasive enough? where now auto dealers and lenders are going to take note and say, hey, by the way, this is all going to come crumbling down on us at some point here. Well, I think it's important to be clear that, you know, we're talking about specific cases, certain instances, and it's, it's very tough to know how pronounced and how prominent, how often this happens. So, um, you know, it, it's unclear sort of 
where this will all land. But it's it's really not a good sign when you see that that, that it's this easy to kind of lie on a car loan and get it approved. I mean, these days now, car loans go out five, six, maybe seven years at this stage, too. So it's obviously going to be a big trend to watch. Ben Eisen from The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much. It's a story we'll be watching for sure just on the lending market overall. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.